Welcome to Game Night with the Saints. We're your hosts, Jess and Brad St. Pierre. We're a husband and wife who have a passion for board games, and this podcast is dedicated to sharing that passion. Welcome back, everyone. Episode four. Got a uh, great episode. We're recording this on the Sunday of Gen Con. And uh, as always, we're going to go through our board game memories for the week followed by Notable News and our Crowdfunding Corner. Before jumping into our feature game, which is Lawyer Up, and we'll be talking about that quite a bit. So why don't you go ahead and uh, kick us off on Board Game Memories, Jess? Okay, well, so my memory this week isn't exactly about playing a board game, as it is more around board games. So we mentioned on our last podcast that Brad and I have purchased a custom board game table that has a removable cover, and we've been playing Sleeping Gods on it while he's been on vacation this week. And one night we were so tired, I said, oh, it's fine. We can leave the cover off. Jaina hasn't (laughs) even noticed we have this new table. And Jaina, if you're new um, this week and joining us, is our toddler. And so, of course, the next morning, it was like she had open table radar and buzzed right into our board game room, which is our dining room, and wanted to climb up and wanted to see all the things for Sleeping Gods. And for me, it was just a fun memory of watching her there with Brad. She wanted to play with the the little person meeple and the, the ship... Um, I guess, I guess it's a meeple, but there's a ship for it. And she just thought it was the coolest thing. And watching Brad explain everything to her, it got me really excited and hopeful that maybe she'll love board games too and want to play with us more in the future. So what about you, Brad? What was your board game memory for the week? All right. So uh, as Jess was talking about, we've been playing Sleeping Gods. So this has a minor spoiler for Sleeping Gods. You can use the timestamps to jump ahead past it if you don't want any kind of spoilers for that game. Uh, So anyway, we were traveling around in the Manticore, having a great time, and we decided it was time to fight a level 17 Squid Titan. And for those that don't know, level 17 is categorized as a dangerous enemy in the rulebook, so not something trivial. And it felt like the first time we really got the combat system of that game um which is a pretty intricate system i'm really enjoying it but it uh, is not super intuitive um but we were strategically wounding the monster and we were shutting down its abilities and minimizing its counterattacks. you know and we were handing synergy tokens back and forth between the crew members and it just flowed really nicely it kind of reminded me of um that fight scene towards the end of the first season of Netflix's Castlevania where Sypha, Alucard, and Trevor are fighting Dracula's court and you can just hear like the bloody tears reverb in the background. Uh, that's, that's a great fight scene if you haven't watched that show, but uh, that's the vibes that that fight gave me because we did so well in it. Okay. Also, there was a minor spoiler there for Castlevania too if you haven't watched it. I mean... <laughs> Anyone who's familiar with Castlevania knows that you got to go to Dracula's castle at some point. (laughs) Fair enough. So, Brad, why don't you kick off uh, our notable news and crowdfunding corner this week? Sure. Yeah, so uh, as we were saying at the intro, 
it was Gen Con weekend, and I was actually kind of surprised there wasn't more high-profile announcements. I was kind of expecting more, but I think it was a more of a subdued convention this year. A lot of publishers decided not to go and or are holding their their announcements for other times. Like Renegade's a good example of this. They've got Artisans of Splendid Vale coming up soon. Um, I don't know if they were at Gen Con or not, but that's their big push for, for this quarter, so it's not really relevant to the convention. Um, but Fantasy Flight did have a uh, pretty big announcement. They announced they are changing their distribution model for the Arkham Horror living card game. And we're big fans of that game. Uh, I think it's great. One of the only downsides to it is the difficulty in completing a full cycle and the cost of completing a full cycle. And this new model kind of addresses both of those because you'll have one box with all of the mythos cards and scenario cards and another box with all of the investigator cards. And that's it. So you'll buy those two products and you'll have a full cycle ready to go. No more chasing down, you know out of print mythos pack four and five so that you can finish like the Dunwich legacy storyline or anything like that. And I think that's great. Did they mention if they were going to reprint any of the previous cycle? Yeah, they're all getting reprinted. Um, so if, sorry if that was unclear. The, the new distribution model is how all of their product is going to be printed going forward. So as an example, the Dunwich legacy is the first mythos cycle for the Arkham Horror card game. It'll just come in two boxes now. You won't have to buy the small box and then chase six Mythos packs. That's really good because we did join like the LCG play a little bit later. So we've had some conversations about being worried that we won't be able to maybe to complete some of the cycle. So that's exciting news. Yeah. I mean, we've had the first half of the Innsmouth Conspiracy on our shelf for four months now. And we just haven't been able to find the, the second half of it. So this solves that problem nicely. Yes, it does. Uh, second piece of notable news, uh, Haba Games announced Rhino Hero Jr. and Animal Upon Animal Jr. for their My Very First Game series. They weren't at Gen Con either, but they uh, did a digital announcement as part of Gen Con Online. And I'm really excited about these two because Rhino Hero and Animal Upon Animal are games that I've actually played as an adult and enjoyed. So to have them uh, scaled down to like the two-year-old level is really exciting for me because I'm envisioning playing them with Jaina and her and I having a good time with them. Just confess, you've already ordered them. That is true. (laughs) Uh, What about you, Jess? Any notable news on your side? So my notable news is a little bit before Gen Con, I woke up one morning and I, I don't remember whether it was Wednesday or Thursday morning and saw that Pandasaurus had been robbed. (laughs) and that's not something you normally get in your news feed for board games but apparently thieves broke into one of their warehouses and i think stole a whole pallet of their new games and they put them on ebay but luckily it sounds like the um they got the authorities involved and the thieves had been caught and ebay immediately when it was tagged as stolen goods removed the listing so hopefully pandasaurus is soon able to recover all their product and no harm to their business i hope so yeah yeah and they did say notably that this wouldn't impact the kickstarter pledges of dinosaur world which are scheduled to deliver any time now they said they had enough residual stock even with the pallet being stolen it was more actually uh going to affect their latest release the loop um 
so good news there, I guess, that uh, that's resolved at least. Bad news that it happened. Yeah. So what did you pick for crowdfunding this week, Brad? Sure, yeah. I picked The Spill, which is designed by Andy Kim and published by Smirk and Dagger Games. And it's a uh, cooperative board game where players take the role of specialists tasked with cleaning up an oil rig, which has blown out and is leaking crude oil into the ocean at a terrifying rate. It uh, uses a really cool dice tower in the central board to determine where the oil leaks to, and it's mocked up as an actual oil rig, which I thought was a nice touch. Um, Players have to work together to push back the oil or remove it as well as to save as much sea life as possible that's been contaminated by the spill. And it looks pretty intense, and we're big fans of difficult co-ops in this house, so that's what first piqued my curiosity about it. But it also draws uh, attention to an ongoing real-world issue because oil spills happen all the time, and very rarely are the companies held to a sufficiently accountable standard, in my opinion. But as part of this Kickstarter, Smirk and Dagger have apparently worked with teachers to develop a common core lesson plan to allow the spill to be a jumping off point for in-class discussions on environmental impact and nature conservancy. That was the thing when you told me that this was going to be your Kickstarter and I looked at it that honestly impressed me the most. I've talked about it over a couple of our podcasts that I really feel board games can be used as a form of education for kids in multiple facets, but this one just clearly is a great one to really teach our kids how important it is to treat our environment, you know, with respect. And I'm actually very interested in this one. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, anytime you can make learning a little more fun, I'm all about that. And if you can do it via the media of board games, even better to me, <laughs> obviously. <laughs> um, but yeah, so they're, they've already got like lesson plans you can download for when you eventually get the game and then have the conversation, the hard conversation with your students about what the environmental impact of an oil spill actually looks like and how difficult it actually is to clean up, right? Um, so that's on Kickstarter, the spill, and it's only on through September 24th. So if you're interested, get your pledge in now. All right. What did you end up uh, going with this week, Jess? So my Kickstarter for this week actually found me. I was browsing through Twitter and saw that someone had backed the Kickstarter Pirate Party Women of the High Seas. And I thought, well, that sounds interesting, women pirates. So I took a look, and it's a first-time game from a new company, Seaport Games. So this is obviously their first Kickstarter. And it is a set collection card game, but all the captains, all the pirate captains are women who are based on historical female pirate captains, which is something you never really hear about. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, it looks pretty interesting as a game. I really like that they add the years that each pirate captain was alive to their card to kind of add that little extra level of veracity to the fact that these were real people, right? Well, and like we were just talking about for your Kickstarter, they actually have on their campaign page um, links that you can go out and read about these captains to learn about them. And I just love that. I love when board games take that extra step and they, they educate us. And 
What made me choose this one is you and I talk a lot about having a daughter and wanting to make sure that we make the world an inclusive place. And I love that they have a very diverse cast of female pirate captains. So I thought it was a a great game. So I'll tick off some of the stats about it for everyone. It plays for two to four players, but they are including a custom solo mode and it says ages 10 plus, and it plays in about 20 minutes, which I know for a lot of families is right about where you need it to be in the yeah, evening. Perfect time slot, sure. And there are six suits, and one of the things I like is that not only does each suit have its own color, but it has its own icon, and that's really great if someone's playing the game and is colorblind, because then they can differentiate the suits by the icon and not just the color. So it's pretty straightforward. It has um, two parts to a turn. You play what card sets you can from your hand and there's different variations. Obviously you can play because they have different card types in there other than just like the captains and their sets. There's adventure cards and mermaid cards. Um, And then after that, after you've played what you can, you draw a card and then it's over to the, the other players. So, I mean, it's pretty straightforward and simple, but like I said, I love the historical ask of it it's not yet 100% funded so if this sounds like something you're interested in it's up on Kickstarter until I think for a few more weeks let me check my day here yep till October 12th Um, if you back it it should be here in August of next year and the base funding is really reasonable it's only $22 for the base um, buy-in of the game which will include all stretch goals Um, so yeah, I think it's worth people giving a, a look-see, um, especially if you're like us and you, you have a daughter and you're all about empowering your your little girl. It's a great, great thing. So, sure. so I think it's time, right, to jump into our game of the week? Uh, yeah, sure. So before we jump into our future game, I just want to say a quick bias statement Uh, Since we're talking about Lawyer Up, which is a legal-themed game, uh, just to set the record straight for everyone, uh, I am coming to the table with some inherent bias here because I am a licensed attorney. So I'm obviously looking at this game with a different set of eyes than some other people might be. Uh, I do have some limited trial experience, but I haven't set foot into a courtroom in almost 10 years. Um, But I just wanted to get that out of the way uh, so that you know that... We do have biases here. I think it's important when we have a bias to disclose that if we can. So there you go. So now we can go ahead and talk about our future game of the week, which is Lawyer Up, designed by Samuel Bailey and Mike Nade, and it's published by Rock Manor Games. So Lawyer Up is a two-player card-driven game where players take on the role of prosecutors and defense attorneys attempting to sway a jury in order to win a verdict in their favor. Uh, Players take turns calling witnesses to the stand and crafting arguments to affect biases of different jury members. Uh, Each card has an influence value in addition to usually having some kind of effect when it's played. And players have to craft logical arguments. So playing cards to your examination requires matching at least one of the bias symbols on the previous card or the witness if it's the first card of the examination. Um, In each case has different win-loss conditions as well as often having a different central mechanic. 
uh, for added variety. So players continue calling witnesses and performing examinations until their win condition is met, or all witnesses have been called, in which case the case will instruct you on how to resolve final scoring, such as via closing arguments or something like that. Okay. So Brad and I had talked after our last episode that when you're doing podcasts about board game reviews, it can be hard to visualize what the individuals are talking about on the podcast. So we're going to add what we're calling set the table for you to give you a little bit of visualization of what the table looks like when you're playing lawyer up. So you have your judge and the judge always starts out on the prosecution side because that I believe is how it actually happens in a typical courtroom is the prosecution goes first. So your judge is at the top, and then underneath your judge, you will have your 12 jurors. And then you have what are um, bias tokens. So there are six different bias tokens, and you have two of each, and they get put out on the jurors. And you, I believe, are instructed on how to do that for each case. How uh, The two that we played, it was random. It was random? It was randomizing, yeah. Okay. And... Then um, you set out your witnesses after each side has picked their way they're going to approach their strategy for the case. So it's your judge, your juries, your witnesses, and then setting in the middle of the table is the discovery deck. And on either side of the table for each player, they have their case deck. So the prosecution has a prosecution case deck, and the defense has the defense case deck. You also have, each player has three objection tokens on their side of the table, and what they call the sidebar token on their side of the table. So that leads us then to how we get started with a game, which is discovery. Yeah, so in the discovery phase, each player will take a look at the top three cards of the deck, choose one to be added to their case deck, one to be added to the opponent's case deck, and one to go into a buried evidence pile, which neither player has access to under normal circumstances. And before we go too much further, I want to talk about what do the cards you're playing with look like. So you understand that when you're going through discovery, what are the things you're looking at? Sure. So each card has a value in the top corner, and it's color-coded, red for prosecution, blue for defense, and a grayish-white for neutral. And it's a, what it is is the value is your influence, because obviously in the court case, you are trying to influence the jury. So, and then... Each card has symbols that match those bias tokens we were talking about that are sitting on the jury. And they have a varying amount of symbols and which symbols are on there. It's, it's except for, um, there's three types of cards. There's evidence, there's arguments, and then there's procedures. And the procedures are almost like a wild because they'll have all of your bias tokens on every single one yeah your bias symbols excuse me yes symbols so um and then each card has some flavor text depending on what it is 
Um, you might have, because the evidence does come in different kinds of evidence, so you might have like medical evidence and it'll have some text in there about like DNA or something for flavor text. And then each card have could have, because not every card has this, could have examination triggered events. And we'll get to what examination is in a moment. And it could have a victory slash win um, the witness trigger events on, on the card. But um, that's only for your evidence cards and your argument cards, because your procedure cards all have an action. Um, and we'll get to that in a little bit. But I just want to set up what the cards are. So when Brad's talking about when you're weighing them for discovery, there's a few things on there you're looking at. Yeah, so to, to go back to the discovery mechanics, so you choose the one for your deck, the one for the opponent's deck, and then you bury one. And you do that until the discovery deck is completely exhausted. So your 26-card base prosecutor deck, as an example, might end up being closer to 60 cards by the time you're done with the discovery phase. And you've only put in about um, 15 of those and your opponent has put in another 15, right? And uh, you don't know what your opponent's put in your deck, which is a interesting choice, I think. Yeah, I mean, when I'm going through the discovery phase, I, <laughs> it's really a matter. Okay, the first thing is what's best for me based on, one, your strategy. When we say your strategy... Um, those bias symbols can have an impact at the end of game for jury sway if you go through all of um, the witnesses. And so I'm looking for, you know, what are the best symbols? What has the highest, um, you know, let's say I'm the defense in this case, because the last game we played, I was the defense. So I'm the defense. So I'm looking at what has the best influence numbers, what has the best examination um, actions, so you're looking at that, and then I'm like, what card is going to screw Brad over the most if I give it to him? <laughs> so that's the second thing. And then, you know, if there's a card there, it's like, oh, this is really good. If he's the prosecution, I'm absolutely going to bury that. So he never, it never sees the light of day for him. Right, right. And overall, I feel the discovery phase was a bit low impact to me. It was very common of the three cards presented the choice was really obvious a lot of the time. Well, this is the best for me, this is the worst for Jess, and this is the one I wouldn't want her to have. And all too often, that was how it was every single time. But, you know, you have to go through the phase, and it, it becomes a little tedious because you just make the same choice every time. It's, you know, this is good, that's bad, so Jess gets it, and then the, the mediocre one for me ends up in the, the buried pile or whatever the case may be. And I do want to note that um, they that Rock Manor Games does have in the rule book that you can actually skip the discovery phase in the sense of you just deal the cards out into three piles and then they get slid across the table. And to be honest, I I that the only thing that saves is time. I don't think it actually fixes some of the issues I have with the discovery phase. And I have three, but what I do want to say, and you and I have talked about this, we actually love that they put a discovery phase in. Yeah. Yeah. to the game because just to step back for a second I want to talk about how Lawyer Up came into our collection we really love Maximum Apocalypse so and we kind of look at Rock Manor Games as our as our local game um, publishing company because they're not too far away from where we actually live 
And so we are always watching what they're putting out there. So when this came out, I went to Brad. We got this one off Kickstarter, right? Yeah. And I said, hey, did you see this? He's like, yeah. But, you know, I didn't know if you'd want to back it. And I was like, well, I can't pass up the chance to try and out-lawyer my lawyer husband. <laughs> so we ended up backing it and hoping that, you know, this was one of the things we appreciate when they put in the steps that these aren't the things that make Hollywood. Like Hollywood doesn't usually a lot of times show when they're showing like TV shows or movies what the discovery phase is. And it is, you know, you've talked about this. It is long. It's the longest process. So it does give some authenticity setting there having to go through the evidence for it. So I do appreciate that they put the discovery phase in there. Yeah. And to be clear, it's not the longest part of the game. It just felt overly long for what I think it was trying to do. Because what I think it essentially is working to do is being a self-balancing mechanism for the game. Because the way it works is you're going to get 15 cards that you picked, which are really good for you. And you're going to get 15 cards that are completely garbage for you. And by doing that draft, right? Well, it might be more or less than 15 on a case-by-case basis, but the the point is the same. And and by doing that draft, you basically equalize the power levels of the defense and the prosecution's uh, starting decks for the case, right? Because you've got a little bit of trash in there. You've got some stuff that you've handpicked that you think is going to knock it out of the park. And then you've got your core cards, which are all pretty good for you. Yeah. And like I said, for the discovery phase, I have three issues. And one is, is if you don't do the skip, as it does take a little while. And that makes it harder for us to get lawyer up to the table. Because right. we, we've we talked about in our previous episodes with Jaina, we don't have a lot of time to play. We get tired very, very easily. So we're kind of lame and in bed by 930 <laughs> most nights. Um, so it can make it hard for us to get this one to the table But two, I really feel that the buried evidence is just a Hollywood trope. And that wasn't really what I was looking for out of this game. um, Because it's not really a thing. That's the whole point of Discovery. Right, Right. yeah. Discovery is all about fact finding as much as you can. And you kind of leave no stone unturned when you're doing it. So the idea that you would be able to bury and hide evidence from the other side is incredibly risky as a trial strategy and really not very common. Um, as an example, right, Blizzard Activision is being sued in a class action lawsuit by the state of California for sexual harassment. And there has been news going around that their HR department is shredding documents in preparation for that suit. And what that does in real life is it's going to um, inform the judge that that was probably evidence that was going to be really bad for them. And the judge will instruct the jury of that activity and what it represents. So they didn't really gain anything by doing that. Although it does make you wonder what was in those documents that it was so bad that they would rather have that presumption of um, unethical behavior and and stuff that would hurt their case as opposed to just letting that come out. Yeah. Um, So, yeah, I mean, and that's, that's an extreme, you know, situation and example there. And the third thing for me that I struggle with the discovery phase is how Brad was saying you balance the deck by giving your opponent bad cards, but your opponent's then forced to play it, right? So if Brad as the prosecution gave me bad quote-unquote evidence cards, as an attorney, I would never 
play them. You would never do anything to hurt your client because you can actually get in big trouble if you like tank your client in real life and, you know, you run the risk of getting um, disbarred and you're already drowning in law school debt. So you can't really afford to lose your job. So (laughs) I just don't feel that, again, that just felt like, you know, something that that wouldn't happen, right? Because you see that in like shows like Law and Order, something mysteriously got leaked to the press or something. Attorneys, I just don't feel do that because of the risk that actually would happen to them. So... Well, yeah, I mean, everybody loves a smoking gun for their legal cases, right? It's like, this is a key piece of evidence that turns the entire case around. That just doesn't really happen in real life that often because both parties know going in that that key piece of evidence exists and either they're going to attempt to mitigate its impact to the jury or they're going to attempt to not let it get to the light of trial in the first place via, you know, procedural arguments or something like that. So it's very uncommon to, you know, just have something nobody knows about completely sway the outcome of a trial. Yeah. So let's talk a little bit if, unless you have, do you have more for discovery or? Okay. Let's talk a little bit then about the mechanics and, and the gameplay. So we talked about how the prosecution always goes first. So the judges favor and you know you have the judge's favor because the judge is two-sided. Red for prosecution, blue for defense. And um, the prosecution then gets to call the first witness as well. So do you want to talk a little bit about like the witnesses and how they work? Yeah, sure. So the witnesses will have bias symbols on them similar to the cards in your deck. And what you need to do is in examining that witness either to you know discredit them or whatever the case may be you can kind of insert your own flavor there the cards don't really tell you what you're doing with this witness necessarily but what you're trying to do is gain as much influence off of the witness as possible so when you call a witness they have a primary value and a secondary value the person who calls them always gets the primary value and they also get the uh, called effect if there is one and then from there you're going to be playing cards from your hand to your examination Uh, so you have to start matching the bias symbols of the witness to your first card and then from there you can take your argument wherever because each of the cards you play will also have bias symbols and uh, grant you influence as you go along and at the end of the examination when both players have passed the person that has the most influence you know wins that witness and gets to use any uh, the difference in their influence between the prosecution and defense, whoever won, to uh, sway some of the jury's biases. And that's, in a lot of cases, the critical factor of the game, who is, quote-unquote, controlling the jury better. Correct. It's a matter of you are controlling the jury, and um, it really is... So I'm trying to think of the right term here to describe what Brad's talking about, the bias symbols. It's a puzzle to me. You draw five cards. You're only allowed to have five cards in your hand unless, I mean, you can get more sometimes throughout the actual examination of the witness, but you start out with each witness with five cards. And what you're looking at is what's the best way I can put them together. And you're looking at the witness like, well, okay, I only have, and I'll use one of the symbols, I only have a bunch of skulls that line up. So I definitely need to make sure I have, 
you know, something that connects with my first skull card to go Mm -hmm. down the line. And then because of the victory or the examine text on it, you're trying to line up a lot of examine text I've seen has things like plus two, if you have, you know, the, um, the heart, we'll say the heart bias symbol, right? So you want to line up as many hearts as possible before you use that card in your examination. So it's really a matching puzzle and a mathematics puzzle. And then you have to pay attention. We talked about procedure cards. So when is your turn? Each person gets one action per turn as the round is going going on. So um, you have the op- opportunity to play a card. So you, you're examining or cross-examining the witness, right? So, and Or you can put a procedure into play. Or if you have a procedure into play and you meet the conditions of the card, which often mean you have to have the judge's favor, you can do the action on one of your procedure cards. Or you can sidebar, which is you get to draw a card, and if you don't have the judge's favor, you can um, you can flip the judge and you get their favor, but you flip your sidebar. So you can only do a sidebar once per round. And it's worth noting that you only get your sidebar flipped around if you lose the witness. So use it carefully. Right. right. Yeah, and I mean, you know, as you play cards from your hand you were trying to line up the symbols like Jess was talking about. And I think one of the most interesting strategic points for the entire game is in calling the right witness to support your hand because the way it works is you draw your new hand of cards after resolving the previous witness and then you can decide on who you want to call uh, if it is your turn to call a witness, which means you just lost the previous witness. Um so there's there's strategy there and then the other major point of strategy i think is in figuring out when to use your objections and objections are those other three tokens that jess mentioned and once per witness you can flip over one of your objection tokens to cancel an opponent's argument entirely they discard it and it is their turn to play again And what you're really trying to do there is find the weak link in their argument to object to, uh, the weak link in their examination to object to, sorry. Um, And if you can time that right, you know, if they're trying to link heart symbol to heart symbol to, you know, skull symbol or whatever, uh, because they have a card that has a heart and a skull to try to make that transition. If you object on the heart skull card, then their turn is over and that's a great feeling, right? Um, but I think that's kind of the crux of the strategic decision-making for, for the majority of the game is when do I use these objections? Right. And I think I have had a lot of instances of play with this where Brad's objections have wrecked my examination and my ability to get influence. And it's important because what Brad had mentioned earlier at the end of each witness influence is subtracted so the loser even if you're losing you want to like lose as high as possible because if brad has 20 influence and he won the witness but i have 13 he only gets seven and the jurors and we didn't mention this the jurors each have a number value set to their token one through six for each side so there's two number one jurors and each to move their bias token takes one 
But when you get up to juror number six on each side, you need six influence to move that bias token. Yeah, one space. One space, right. And there's four spaces on the card. So it matters. The, the, the amount of points matters even if you're losing. So if you're losing and they mess you up really early that you can't do anything and all of a sudden your opponent runs away and now they had 20 and you only had two, well, they have 18 points of influence to spend at the end of that witness. Right. And it's a bit of a catch 22 because I wish I had a little more control over the types of cards I was drawing so I could have a little more responsive gameplay as opposed to just the objections or, you know, the cards that you play that also mess with your opponent's examination being kind of the critical element of the game. Because there, there isn't a worse feeling than you know, just losing a witness, drawing up your new hand and trying to figure out which witness to call and realizing that none of the symbols in your hand match any of the remaining available witnesses, right? So you're going to lose two in a row. And at that point, you're at like minimized loss territory, but it's still not a great feeling. And I wish there was a way to to mitigate that somehow. And I definitely had that feeling. We, we've, you and I've talked about this a lot the past couple of days as we prepared for this podcast is our last game was the the base game comes with um two cases essentially there's a art theft case uh, art forgery excuse me art forgery case and um a murder case and the last case that brad and i played was one of the the murder well, the murder case, but it varies depending on what your strategy is. Because like I said, each card has some flavor text, so you get different pieces of the story depending on what cards you have and what witnesses you have. Right. So, um, but I really felt underpowered. It's the wrong word here because it's not powers. But I really, I th- there's a lot of talk in the real world about... Um, bias for the prosecution prosecutorial bias and well i was going to butcher that word so i decided not to say (laughs) it um so and i really felt that in our most recent game because i just it felt hopeless to me because brad cut me off with good objections a couple of times and i lost witnesses that were mine that i called that i had hoped to win and in the murder case the win conditions are a little different than the art forgery case And that is that if there's a lock on the jurors, excuse me, on the jurors in the murder case, and if the prosecution gets all the bias tokens to the lock, they automatically win, no matter where you are in the game. So it felt like just treading water and trying not to drown to keep those tokens away from that lock symbol the whole game. Yeah, so uh, just to clarify, in the uh, murder, murder trial, the prosecutor has the ability to lock jurors to his side by maxing out their bias on to the prosecutor's side and the defense cannot normally unlock those jurors and the prosecution can win by preemptively locking up all 12 of the jurors even before the trial's over and the defense can only win the murder trial by having at least one juror still on their side at the end of closing arguments. So it's a bit of an uphill battle. And if they were trying to showcase the prosecutorial bias of the real world, I think they kind of nailed it because, you know, it's pretty common in real life for jurors to make up their mind pretty early and then check out and just, you know, sit on their phone or whatever for the rest of the trial and not really 
pay much attention and dragging them back into the conversation can be really difficult. Yeah. And we, and we talked about that when I was like, I don't understand why are they locked? But, (laughs) but it, it makes sense. And there are cards. Um, they do have mechanisms built in there for the, for the murder trial, the defendant when has an ability to like unlock three. And so there's a lot of, there is strategy to the bias tokens and the jury and, um, like Brad was talking about your objection tokens, you only get three and they can only be used once per witness. And once those three are used up, I mean, you, how big is the witness pool? Six? It depends. On it depends on the case. case basis. Yeah. I'm sorry. Our toddler's still teething. So my, <laughs> my brain's a little sleep deprived. So forgive me as I stumble a little bit this, this episode. So, um, so, you know, if you're going to be going through, you know, Let's say we'll use six. You have six witnesses plus in the the murder trial, you might have seven with the defendant if you choose to call them. And trust me, you'll need to call them um, because you'll need those unlocks. The um, those three objections really don't feel like that much. And I don't know if, you know, because obviously I've never been a trial lawyer, if that's normal, but I feel like. I would object to every single argument that gave Brad influence if I could. Yeah, I mean, for context in the real world, objections are incredibly common and happen all the time during a uh, trial. And you've got to be willing to to fight to sustain your, you know, to, to have these objections overruled uh, and get your arguments out there. Because if they get sustained, then, you know, even if you've made a good point, the judge will instruct the jury to disregard it or whatever the case may be but they're much more common than just three for the entire trial but i do appreciate how they incorporated them and the way they serve as a game mechanic here because like you said they're really an interrupt my opponent because it's critical that they not get influence and we saw um some cases where like brad ended up with like i 61 influence that I couldn't do anything about right and I mean I had high influence of like 20 something but like he still had absurd influence I think that was the last round you won the you won the murder trial game that time but like it was it you know without the if I hadn't objected to one thing he would have had even more so it it adds up over time yeah and I think you know they were trying to capture the drama of the courtroom experience. And I think there are definitely moments where lawyer up succeeds at that. Uh, As you were just talking about times where you build up a huge examination on a particular witness, and that's going to score you tons of influence really feels like you're, you know, hitting your stride as like a demagogue or something, right. And making this really compelling argument and there's nothing that the opponent can do to stop you. And, you know, you see that all the time. In movies and stuff, the you know impassioned lawyer makes a twelve-minute speech or something, and suddenly everybody's minds are changed, right? <laughs> and, you know, so they they definitely grab that feel. Um, you know, and similarly, when you make a perfectly timed objection, that's pretty much the only time you see objections in movies, right? Is when they would be perfect for that situation, as opposed to you know every six minutes or something that happens in a real trial. <laughs> um, so I, th- I think that's what they were going for. And I think they do kind of capture it to an extent. Some of the fun we had, and when Brad was talking about the drama, like I said, there's the flavor text. So some fun we had. I mean, I think everyone knows at this point, I like 
I like games that look nice and there is the I think the artwork's well done on these cards. But I also love the story and I love having, you know, an enjoyable time in the immersion and that doesn't necessarily happen here, but some of the flavor text is fun. So Brad and I would have fun like reading the the flavor text with like an impassioned voice, like we right. were the, the the attorneys. So there's definitely some fun to be had there making your stride during your examination yeah yeah i think that's probably when we were having the most fun right with lawyer up is when we were kind of role playing the roles um and really getting into it and the only downside of that is that all is also lawyer up at its longest um i think when we really got into that we were doing the art forgery case and i think it took us like two hours and 15 minutes to do what is supposed to be the shortest case in the box right <laughs> um so that's not great but in, in general i would say you know probably an hour and a half per case uh we'd probably get through the myrtle trial case in about an hour and a half uh which is still more than it says on the box 60 minutes it seems like a bit of a stretch yeah and i want to talk about a little bit about some strategy mixing in with your examination so we mentioned earlier how the symbols vary and you're like it's a puzzle you're trying to put together well one of the things one of the first couple games we played is i didn't play any of the procedure cards as procedure cards i used them as wilds and so they have (laughs) your procedure cards have zero influence so they don't add any influence to what I want to sidebar is a really cool little influence wheel you have to spin to keep track. And I've told Brad, I think a lot of other games would be, would benefit from where they struggle with tallying things by having that same wheel in it. But, um, so I use the procedure cards as wilds so that right, no matter, bridge, yeah, argument to argument. yeah. So, and I think it was probably our first or second game I did that and it was because I kept getting tired of Brad objecting me so I'd sit there on my yeah, procedure cards in case he objected so that no matter what he couldn't mess up my entire examination he could only mess up part of it because you could use that as a wild so that's something to think about because I've also seen the other side of the table Brad used all of his procedure cards in one of our first games and like he put them down in the play area but you only use like one or two of them because like I said the judge's favor is usually required to do them so if you don't have the judge's favor they just can sit there yeah and I think that's probably my favorite part overall about lawyer up is the multi-use nature of the procedure cards um, the decision of whether to play the card to use its action effect later or as part of your examination to kind of shore up a line of questioning always felt super meaningful and super impactful to me. I was kind of expecting, because um, I, I love card-driven games. Multi-use cards probably my favorite board game mechanic. I think I said that in the last podcast too. And I was kind of expecting more of that from Lawyer Up as opposed to what we got, which was kind of an interesting set collection, uh, not set collection, set matching puzzle instead. But I I definitely think that was the highlight for me was the multi-use nature of the procedure cards. Yeah. So, um, you know, like I said, that's just one of the strategies when you're playing is you don't have to use it as an action to have an action card. You can use it to have a wild in your hand to stop that wily prosecutor from messing up your entire examination while you're trying to save your poor innocent client at the table (laughs) right 
And I want to circle back to the theme a little bit because for whatever reason, the legal theme is really underutilized in board gaming overall. And I mean, it's, it's, it's ripe for exploration because a lot of people already think of our, you know, legal system as a game or whatever. Right. And I'm really surprised not to see more games with this theme. And I really think there are some things, a lot of things, in fact, that Laurier up really nails thematically from the, you know, legal standpoint. Um, while I take issue with the discovery phase mechanically or, you know, from a, a fun to time ratio or whatever, I love that it exists in this game because it's an aspect of trial practice that is hardly ever represented in popular media, right? Um, similarly, I love the way the objections are represented in this game as well. They're an incredibly important part of trial proceedings in the real world, and they don't get that much attention in mainstream media except as that one that one smoking gun moment, right? Um, so I love that they're an integral part of this game because they are that critical in actual trial practice as well, although they're much more common. I understand why you wouldn't want to have 40 objection tokens or something, right? <laughs> well, yeah, if you thought the discovery phase was bad for time, imagine if each player had like 50 objection tokens going into the game. Right, right. Well, and in the real world, right, they're not a sure thing like they are in this game. So there's obviously some gamification elements here. The uh, judge's favor is another good example of that. There shouldn't really be a real world analog to having the judge's favor because their whole job is to be impartial and to just interpret the law, right? So there shouldn't be favoritism. If there is, then the system is already kind of broken down a little bit, right? Scary thought. Um, and then obviously asking for a sidebar has very different connotations in the real world than it does in the game, but that's fine, right? I'm not looking for a simulationist experience here. You know, if Vital Lacerda ever makes a game about trial practice, it'll probably take like, 200 hours to play or something like that and that's not what i'm looking for in this kind of game so where they get it right i think they do a pretty admirable job of giving you at least a little bit of the feel of what it's like to be a trial attorney of course you know talking about the theme of this game i was a little disheartened to see um that it kind of leans into some of the less generous tropes of legal personnel in the real world, um, you know, as someone who, who operates in this environment in the real world, I was, I was a bit disheartened to see that they went with a popular media perspective of legal personnel, um, you know, cards like, sure. Well, I just wanted to add that I agree. Like for me, the whole crooked lawyer thing came up more than once. I think there was like bribe, a bribery card in there. I forget the actual name of yeah. it. And even the bury the evidence seems, you know, makes you sketchy from the get-go during discovery. I, that right. was an aspect I did not enjoy. Yeah, and I mean, there's there's a bribery card and a tamper with the evidence card in the base decks of both the prosecution and the defense, right? Um, so they're obviously playing into that whole all lawyers are crooked or morally questionable individuals stereotype that Hollywood loves to portray. Um and in my experience, it's kind of the furthest thing from the from the truth because, you know, you spend around $200,000 to get a law degree nowadays. Most people are not going to be willing 
to put that on the line and do something unethical or against the rules to win a case or something because their upfront investment is way too high, right? Not even a question of morality. And because Lawyer Oaks gets so much right, it's especially painful to see this reliance on tropiness of this kind, right? And they, they didn't have to do it. Tamper with the evidence could have been renamed into something like render irrelevant and still had the same effect. Bribery could have been called supplemental findings, uh, supplemental filings, right, as an example, and still had the same effect and not the negative connotation. So, So it's a bit disheartening to see them lean into that. And I also think it's a bit of a missed opportunity for them because if they didn't do that in the base decks, they could have explicitly done it in one of their expansion cases, right? Like the Godfather case, they could have explicitly said the defense attorney is crooked and therefore he's got access to bribery and coercion and all this other stuff that you wouldn't normally have in the legal sphere because he doesn't care, right? He supports criminals in an unethical way and all this other stuff, right? But they don't do that because it's in the base deck. So now, you know, they just lean into the every attorney is is crooked thing. And I, I know this won't bother the majority of people that play this game but it didn't have to be that way and it's kind of unfortunate that it is we haven't really had a chance to play the the godfather and the witch trial yet because we were focusing just on the base game knowing that we were eventually going to do a review for it so we were playing just the art forgery and the murder case to do that and i'm, I'm looking forward to seeing if maybe the special themed games are different in any way like brad mentioned but to be honest i always talk about does something have its permanent space on our shelf and i'm not sure that lawyer up does because one the time it takes to play it is 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 long and i usually don't do that for what it is yeah i mean so i'm not sure i would pick it over some of our other games that require as i call it under the cover you know, board board game table use. So um, I'm not sure yet. I'm still a little on the fence on if it's going to stay in our collection or not. Yeah, and I mean, the different cases do feel substantially different. The art forgery case definitely feels different than the murder trial with the locking mechanism and everything for the prosecution. So I think there is a lot of play here with the system that they can iterate on with future expansions as well. But... I, d- I don't know how long this will be in our collection either based on our experience with it today. We've, we've enjoyed it. It's been really fun, but I don't know that it has the staying power to have a permanent place in our collection. Anything else you want to add? All right. You've been listening to Game Night with the Saints with us, your hosts, Jess and Brad St. Pierre. If you like what you just heard, please consider leaving us a review on your podcast platform of choice. It really helps. You can also follow us on Instagram at Saint Gamers or Twitter at Saint underscore Gamers to let us know what you think and be notified when the next episode goes live. We also have a Ko-Fi account linked at the bottom of the show notes if you feel like tossing us a couple of bucks to help offset the costs of running the podcast and website. We'll be back again in two weeks with another episode. Until then, remember, it's just a game.